Hi, and welcome to this week's LGBT Wellness Podcast. Each week, LGBT HealthLink, a program of Centerlink, brings you a roundup of some of the biggest LGBTQ wellness stories from the past week. Get ready to listen and learn lots. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another week of our LGBT Wellness Roundup. This week, we have something um, very different. So uh, I would still encourage you, as always, if you're interested in following up on anything I'm about to share, um, to go over to blog.lgbthealthlink.org to find more information, because that's where we'll post the written version of this roundup. But this week, instead of going through recent uh, news stories and new journal articles that have come out, we're actually going to go through um, some news that LGBT HealthLink has made itself and look at some of the sessions um, that HealthLink and its parent organizations Centerlink um, hosted together during their month-long V Summit that just wrapped up. Now, normally the summit is something that happens um, in person, although HealthLink has done a version of, of an online summit for a number of years as well. Um, and this year, of course, with COVID and everything, everything was moved virtual. Um, so this was a big event that happened across the month of October um, and really looked at a lot of different issues facing LGBT community centers, whether that's around um, funding, um, which is obviously a huge concern right now in the middle of the pandemic and a global recession, um, whether that is looking at integrating racial justice um, into the work that the centers are doing, or whether that's looking at kind of really important health issues. So of course, this being our, our wellness roundup of the week, I'm going to be focused on some of the sessions that had to do with health topics. Um, and so I've um, picked out a selection uh, among a lot of really great sessions that I could have covered here today, um, but I tried to pick out some that were kind of representative of the conversation that was had. And so I'm going to jump in with the first of the four that I'm going to cover today, which is on HIV services during COVID-19. Now, this session was very exciting because um, we had Dr. John Brooks of the CDC who presented on COVID-19, the state of the pandemic and implications for HIV care and prevention. The pandemic has prevented myriad challenges to providing HIV prevention and care services. For example, from January through May, lapses in PrEP use in one study based out of the Fenway Health Clinic in Boston, um, they saw lapses increase 191%, and they also saw new starts of PrEP drop by 72%. So basically, you know, that's showing that a lot of people who were on PrEP, uh, stopped using it way more than the number who normally would stop using it for some reason. And, you know, in general, new folks were not coming in to get added to a PrEP regimen. So really concerning data there. They also saw during that time HIV and STI testing drop by 85%. Now, of course, this is a topic that we've covered here on the podcast, and some of this has to do with the fact that people have been less sexually active, especially during the early stage of the pandemic when there were a lot of um, shutdowns of things and it was, you know, hard to even go out and, and meet people. Um, so a lot of people were, were not being social in general and didn't really maybe feel the need to be um, on prep or getting testing. And, you know, the other side is that it was really hard to get those kinds of services because of the shutdowns and, and transportation being difficult, offices being shut down, especially for kind of non-emergency things. So it's been a mix of factors, and that was one of the things that this session covered. 
The CDC has also issued guidance to HIV care providers on how to continue services during the pandemic, such as using telemedicine and at-home testing. And this, to me, was really interesting um, during the presentation because, you know, some of this is, is a little bit um, hindsight right now because, you know, a lot of a lot of uh, medical practices have opened back up. But on the other hand, we know another big wave of, of the pandemic is coming and, and is kind of already here. So really great time for people who are working in the HIV field to see how many of these best practices they've adapted and what they can do to kind of prepare for the winter that is to come. Now, we also had Francisca Ruiz, also of the CDC, um, who is part of the Let's Stop HIV Together campaign. And um, Francisco was encouraging LGBT service providers uh, to continue sharing a lot of the great resources and social media tools that Let's Stop HIV Together has to offer um, to make sure that, you know, people are, are keeping HIV on their minds. They're not letting their guard down. Um, they are still being safe. They're still getting tested. They are still considering PrEP if that's a good option for them. Um, and, you know, as important as COVID-19 is, that people are not forgetting about other um, issues of their health that they need to be taken care of. Next up, LGBT Puerto Ricans are stronger than crises. The next session that I selected was about the Waves Ahead program in Puerto Rico, um, and I thought it was really interesting because they spoke to, um, you know, having adapted not just to COVID-19, but also having dealt with hurricanes, political unrest, um, and other issues such as, um, you know, really a problem with, with the murder of transgender folks. They've had six transgender people murdered on the island since January, um, and they've had to respond to that as a crisis as well. So we started out hearing from Dr. Wilfred Laviosa, um, who talked about kind of how they were adapting to this series of crises there. Um, we also heard from Kiriana Castro-Lebron, who discussed the organization's Descubrate program. That includes coaching, training, and mental health services to LGBT older adults to help them become entrepreneurs and manage their own micro-businesses, um, which I thought was fascinating. So, you know, these are folks who may not have an entryway into um, the formal economy, which has been very strapped in Puerto Rico for a number of years. So basically helping them to have skills so that they can, you know, do their own micro business um, and, and earn some income, you know, where, where other opportunities may be cut off to them. Um, she discussed how helping people manage their mental health issues was really key to opening up those economic opportunities that they would not have otherwise had. Castro Lebron also said that the pandemic has posed a major obstacle to the program's participants in accessing services as well as conducting their businesses. So when we think about folks, you know, who are um, who are kind of struggling to get a, a really, you know, not not a small business like like a you know a, a um, I don't know, like a, a professional small business, but, you know, really someone who's who's kind of gaining these basic skills to have a very, um, you know, a self-run um, micro business, um, you know, th th these are, are folks who they were saying, you know, are often lacking um, Things like, you know, um, reliable internet, um, computers, and also, you know, since we're, we're talking about, in this case, um, older adults may not be familiar with using things like um, video calling and Zoom and whatnot. So trying to adapt their business to, to things that were going on with COVID-19 was really hard. And I think when we think about people who are informally employed, who, you know, maybe kind of um, selling things in markets, um, you know, are kind of out in the public, these are really uh, dangerous positions during the pandemic, especially 
especially for people who may be of a high risk group. So, you know, they, they talked a lot about, about how they've been adapting these programs. Um, and to me, it was really interesting just to think about how all of these things are, are integrated. You have people who are dealing with, um, with their own personal mental health issues, perhaps you have people who are dealing with the collective trauma that comes with, um, with general things that have affected the island, things like hurricanes and political situations. You also have um, people who are dealing with community trauma based on things like the murder of LGBT folks. So you have all of these different issues and really trying to address that holistically while also giving people some skills and some opportunity to be independent um, and to earn an income was just really fascinating. Next up, bringing research home for LGBT folks. This was a session that I, I had to select because I spend so much time here on the podcast talking about research and data. So here we heard from Mari Bahadi of PrideNet, um, who presented a, a presentation called Research in the Community, Listening Sessions with SGM People, that's Sexual and Gender Minorities, Across the Country. Mari discussed uh, research initiatives, including the PRIDE study, which is a nationwide long-term study following LGBT folks to learn about their health, and also the All of Us Research Program, which I had discussed on a recent um, episode of the podcast. That's a federal initiative, which has um, an LGBT component where they are trying to gather more health information on anyone who's kind of signing up to volunteer that so that they can get just way more health data around um, groups who are often kind of underserved and who uh, don't always come out in, in, in numbers in research, either because they're, they're not being recognized as a subgroup or, or just their, their population is too small in different studies. So folks like LGBT folks, you know, where, where this is a way for us to really be counted. So um, Mari was talking about the importance of researchers seeking out LGBT voices um, at all points in the research process. So, you know, often LGBT folks for, for studies are sought out as participants, but are they part of the design process? You know, are, are they part of, um, of creating the survey so that it, it really makes sense for the community and it respects their identities, the terms that they like to use? Um, you know, and then on the other side, are they involved in the publication? Are they helping to review the data? Um, are they weighing in on that? Are they making sure that it's going to be something that will resonate with people and will help the community? Um, you know, she talked about how oftentimes people don't really get the point of, of research. They don't see the policy change. They don't understand what's coming out of that. And it is hard to see, you know, even I think for those of us who work in the field, um, you know, it's, it's sometimes it's, you do a lot of work and you hope that it's going to come back and end up having a benefit and you don't always know exactly what the outcome is going to be. And I think for people who are just in the community who aren't part of the work directly in that way, you know, it's even more difficult sometimes to understand, okay, well, you're asking me to do another survey. You know, you want um, personal information about my health. How do I know that's going to help me or my community? So um, a really interesting conversation just about how to engage people, really make sure they're part of the process so that we um, get more participants in studies like the Pride Studies and the All of Us uh, initiative. And now my last story for the week, keeping connected to LGBT older adults. The session, Senior Programming Before covid the Pivot and the Future was another um, session that I picked out because of its focus on older adults who I think are such an important group for um, LGBT community centers and service providers in general to be reaching out to. It's a growing population um, because, you know, as we kind of get more folks who grew up in a time when it was uh, at least somewhat 
acceptable to be LGBTQ as more of them kind of reach the retirement age and above. Um, that population is continuing to grow. And it's also a population that really deals with a lot of problems relating to isolation and discrimination. So having those spaces is so important. So anyway, we heard from Adrian Percival of Compass, um, who discussed how they moved in-person events to virtual settings. They also talked about keeping the, um, the Compass Center physically open by appointment only, which was important for certain service types. They also talked about having phone trees for outreach and, you know, discussed the fact that a lot of, um, a lot of older adults are not super comfortable with virtual meetings. They maybe didn't have the technology or they just hadn't done it before. I think, frankly, a lot of people um, of all ages hadn't really <laughs> done much um, video conferencing, um, you know, and so for folks who are maybe uh, retired and, and are in the workforce, you know, that's that's something that's kind of even more hard to adapt to. So they talked about kind of how they, they tried to make sure their services were accessible. We also heard from Britta Larson of the Center on Halstead out in Chicago. Britta discussed how they paired volunteers with seniors to be able to have one-on-one -on -one conversations weekly, which seemed like a great idea because, you know, I think especially if you're not kind of used to doing it, something like a Zoom call with, you know, 20 people on it can seem really impersonal, can be kind of a hard way to connect, um, especially for people who just don't like, um, you know, the idea of sitting in front of a computer screen. Um, so the idea of doing one-on-one -on -one conversations seemed like such a great idea. And they said that what a lot of people reported that they were missing was just social contact and needing someone to talk to versus kind of any, you know, a specific service. So having those one-on-one -on -one conversations was really kind of meeting their need there. Now, the Center on Halstead also talked about offering a pop-up um, food pantry and having events where seniors could stop by and take meals to go because right from the beginning, they were really worried about food insecurity among LGBT older adults, which makes sense. Obviously, the, the economy has been strained, but also with, you know, different um, services and, and centers being shut down. Plus, I think even the fact that you can't, you know, you haven't been able to get together with people. So maybe they had um, friends who they were able to go to for food or family members and those opportunities kind of dried up with the pandemic. So definitely interesting to hear um, how some of these services are adapting to meet the, the mental health needs, the physical health needs, the nutrition needs of older adults. Well, that does it for another edition of our LGBT Wellness Roundup. Again, if you would like to see the written version of this roundup, which has um, links to a lot of the different organizations that I talked about and some of the studies, you can find that at blog.lgbthealthlink.org. You can also, of course, go to lgbthealthlink.org or go to Centerlink's website, which is lgbtcenters.org, if you'd like to learn more about the V Summit in general. Thanks for listening, and I hope you will subscribe. We will be back next week with a, a regular edition of our, our Roundup where we'll go back to, um, to the news. But I hope that you enjoyed this special edition, um, especially for those who were not able to participate in the V-Summit, just to hear some of the highlights and some of the really interesting topics that are being discussed. Stay well, have a great week, and we'll talk to you on the next edition of the podcast. <music>